Take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 5, please. Matthew chapter 5, and we're in a study on the basic teaching of Jesus known as the Sermon on the Mount. And we just heard what we have often called the Beatitudes song, and now we're going to read them. If you take your Bible and turn to Matthew 5, we'll read together verses 1 through 12. Um, let's stand together as we, uh, I'll read to you, uh, because we have different translations. Seeing the multitudes, he went up on a mountain, and when he was seated, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this morning we're grateful to be able to be here together in worship. Think of you. Lord, we're we're very conscious of your otherness, of your great holiness. How different we are from you because you're holy. And we're very, very hopeful when we read the promises of your word that we can be partakers in your holiness and so that's why we've gathered here today lord because we have this conscious longing and need for you uh, because we delight in you and because we know we ought to delight in you more and lord i know there are probably some here that are either very very new uh, to to the faith or or they're not believers yet at all and i i I pray a special uh, enlightenment for them an understanding in their minds and hearts even as we uh, give attention to your word and and this sermon that you preached one day uh, on the hillsides there overlooking the Sea of Galilee many, many years ago. We ask this in the precious name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Notice the the basic structure, this beautiful uh, message of the Lord Jesus. We have before us here, and we'll go over the whole message again briefly. We have before us here in verses 1 through 12, and perhaps if you include on through verse 16, the Beatitudes and the Similitudes, you have uh, the the Blesseds, if you will. Uh, Blessed are six, nine times, eight Beatitudes. Usually that's how we look at it. Eight Beatitudes, nine times the word blessed and the word blessed in the bible is a special word uh, we we tend to think of uh it's kind of like a, a deep and abiding uh happiness that's rooted in god it's only rooted in god happiness as you know um kind of depends on our circumstances um our, our you know kind of a light-hearted joy depends on if things are going well for us that's not what this is talking about what this is talking about, this blessed word that's used in the Bible, is uh, used of uh, a person who has the approval of God on his life, and therefore he has a kind of a deep, he or she, they have a very a deep-seated abiding joy, even if they're going through very difficult things. 
And, and that's what um, Jesus starts out by saying. This is interesting to look at the structure. You have that key feature. In verses 1 through 12, you have the blesseds, if you will, the beatitudes, eight of them, nine times the word blessed is used. And you have those two pictures that follow that, uh, the similitudes, uh, salt of the earth and light of the world. Notice then, as you go into chapter 5, you'll notice that there's something that's repeated. There's a symmetry, there's a poetry, there's an order, there's a cadence, there's a structure to Jesus' message. It's really obvious with the blessed, blessed are, blessed are, over and over again. And it's also obvious there in chapter 5, because there's something that's repeated six different times. He says, you have heard it said, but I say to you. You have heard it said, but I say to you. You don't want to, or, we don't want to overlook that kind of repetition because that kind of repetition is always a key to understanding what the original speaker, the Lord Jesus himself, the preacher here, was really trying to get across. You have heard it said, but I say. He's going to correct something that people are thinking that's wrong. Chapter 5, verse 21 following. Chapter 6, again, you see three things that are to be done in secret that the Father will reward openly. Secret giving, secret praying, and secret fasting. These are assumed by Jesus in his message that they're not going to be done to be seen by men and women. That people, So people would see them with a motive of being seen, but they would be seen with a motive of being rewarded by uh, the Father who sees in secret and rewards openly. So you have those three things. You see that? You have the, you have the, the eight blesseds. You have nine repetitions of the word, but eight blessings, eight beatitudes, if you will, two similitudes. You have six repetitions of you have heard, but I say. In chapter 6, you have three secret things, give and pray and fast. And in chapter 7, you have three pairs of things. You have three pairs. You have two gates in chapter 7. You have two trees in chapter 7. And you have two foundations in chapter 7 that chapter 7 comes to the end of the sermon on the mount and jesus concludes his message with a story it's not a little light happy story it's kind of an ominous and frightening story and he's making it very clear and he gets to the end of his message it's a choice it's going to be called on he's going to call on his people that are listening to him to make a choice between these two trees or these two gates or these two foundations can you hear the voice of the Lord Jesus Christ still ringing down through the centuries and even into your own heart this morning as he still calls on people, who will you follow and what will your choice be? We want to look again at this wonderful sermon. And understand first of all this, in, in, in the repetition of this word blessed, Jesus wants his followers to be beyond happy. I like to say it like this, and this may not be the most accurate way of saying it, but he wants us to be as happy as it is humanly possible for us to be. He wants us to be blessed. He wants us to have favor with God. He wants our lives to please him, and so he wants us to be happy. It's possible to be that kind of happy, that kind of joyful. And we can take it through the scriptures, we won't write today. But we can take it through the scriptures and show you over and over again passages like Jesus saying, I came so that you would understand what it really is like to be happy. In other words, joyful. He, I, I, he, you can say it this way. It's as if Jesus says throughout his ministry, whenever he preaches, you think you've got to do this to be happy. I'm here to tell you, I'm here to show you a kind of happiness that's so much deeper than that, so much more lasting than that, so much more like innocent than the, than the happiness that you were thinking that you were going to try to get. I'm here to show you how to really, really be happy forever or how to be really joyful or better yet, how to be 
blessed. That's what he calls it. And so this is what Jesus is teaching. God wants us to be blessed. This is Old Testament and New. You can see it in the Psalms over and over again. God wants his people to enjoy happiness, and it makes him look good when that happens. People that are followers of Jesus are happy, and he's glorified that way. That's how it works. And so you see it there. The way of blessedness, though, is this, not what we think. And that's why over and over again, he's going to say, you've heard that it's been said by those of old time, but I say to you, God wants us to be happy, but he wants us to understand that the way that we normally think of to be happy is not the way of happiness. And the way that we normally think of to really have a deep-rooted kind of a joy and kind of an order in our life, a sense of well-being in our soul, is not what we have been taught. It's not what we would normally think. The way of blessedness is not what we think and it's not what we've been taught. Another way of saying that is it's counterintuitive and it's countercultural. It's against the way I would normally land. It's against the way I would normally think. It's counterintuitive. It's, it's against the way our culture... It's always been against the way the culture teaches to be happy. The culture has a kind of a paradigm. This is how you go after what you want and how you can be happy. Jesus' teaching is always different than that. And you will see that so clearly in this message. There's no really other way to understand it when you read this message than to see that Jesus is saying, it's different than you were thinking. I'm here to help change your mind about something and change your life about something. It's counterintuitive against the grain of our depraved, inherited nature and against the grain of popular opinion. In in, uh, Israel, he's on the north shore somewhere on the north shore of the Lake Galilee, I was kind of looking at pictures. And in the spring, Lois and I are going to go there. Can you believe that? We're going we're to actually go there. But um, uh, we were looking at pictures on the Internet and uh, at, at some of the places where this might have been. No one knows exactly for sure where it was that Jesus gave the Sermon on the Mount. But we know that it was on a, on a plain, on a high, exalted place. A word translated uh, mountain here. It was a high place. It was probably, uh, undoubtedly within sight of the Sea of Galilee, would have been a place where people could gather. And Jesus spoke to these multitudes that gathered. Some of them were like curious onlooker types, and some of them were devoted follower, seeker, disciple people. Uh, Among the Jews, there would have been some groups. Obviously, the groups that are named here are the Pharisees. They get named over and over again. They might get named over and over again for a couple of reasons. One reason would be that he would have named the Pharisees over and over again would have been they were the majority party in terms of the groups of the different four groups of Jewish thought in his day. The Pharisees were the majority party. They were the ruling group, if you will. And so their opinion would have been maybe maybe the prevailing opinion and he went directly after that and specifically named that. That was interesting. There were the Sadducees. The Pharisees would have been the conservatives, if you will. And the, the, the Sadducees, um, as you, you probably have been taught, didn't believe in the resurrection. They would have been considered themselves progressives. There were, there were groups of uh, Essenes and groups of Zealots, Pharisees, Sadducees, Essenes, zealots, in a simplistic way, Essenes said, retreat, be monastic, if you will, kind of go off and live by, build a cabin in the woods, and, and, and zealots were the opposite. They said, attack, 
The Essenes were like avoid and, and the zealots were attack. And what's really interesting is if you read about the disciples of Jesus, he ended up gathering people who were, okay, if you're a zealot, what are you? You are against the Roman occupation and you're against the Roman government. And if you're, if you're a publican, what are you? You're a shill of the Roman government. You're a tax collector for the Roman government. Jesus had disciples that were zealots and disciples that were publicans. Pretty interesting. He had Pharisee-leaning disciples too. So it's interesting that you have these groups. Now they're all there and they're not all quite wrong and they're not all quite right either. Because God was going to do an old thing and he's going to do a new thing. And it involved kind of getting away, but it also involved... kind of being aggressive too. There's a sense in which they all had a piece of it, but none of them had all of it. And so Jesus is really correcting these things and he's speaking to these things. The geography would have also kind of lent itself to an understanding of this because Josephus, Jewish historian, said that there was a bustling community of over 204 little thriving communities on the north shore of the Lake of Galilee. It would have been farmers and there would have been fishermen. There would have been Roman soldiers among them, occupying among them, and there would have been uh, Roman people that were sympathetic, or at least they were on the take from the Roman government, publicans, kind of like the guy who wrote this book, Matthew Levi. And this would have been this would this is the this is what would have charged the atmosphere when people gathered. Why did people gather to Jesus? Why did a multitude gather to him? Because they all had their own thing that they wanted, that they expected to get from him. Probably the Pharisees said he's probably going to take everybody back to where they ought to be. And the and the and the, and the Sadducees says. Finally, there's going to be somebody who's going to be progressive enough to do what we need. And the zealots said, finally, we've got somebody who's going to be able to, with military might and political force, throw off the yoke of a Roman oppression. And the Essenes, ah, holy man, is finally among us. And he's going to disappoint all of them because he didn't come to get in any of their parties. He came to get them in his party. So it was there that uh, probably where Jesus sat and spoke, which when a Jewish rabbi sat down, that's when he was speaking officially. And that's what the scriptures say, he sat. And the people, multitudes came to him and he sat down, gathered him, and when he spoke, probably would have been geographical, physical evidence of all those things that we were talking about within sight of everybody. No doubt the panorama of the Sea of Galilee and an elevation to look down. There are people that go to the Holy Land today, and they go to the place where they think this sermon was given, and they point out all the places where, a number of the places where Jesus went, and then they go on the tour, and they go to those very places. So there would have been a place of perspective, a thought-provoking place, a place that would have taken some, perhaps some diligence to get to it. This is where Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount. And in it, he talks about what true righteousness is, and he contrasts it to the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, which would have been considered, among most of them, the most righteous, because they're of their attendance to the law and the laws that they added to the law, and they're even, in some cases, they're perversions of the law. And you'll see that in chapter 5, verses 17 through 20. And you maybe remember last week when we were talking about what I believe to be a key verse to understand this verse 20 unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and pharisees you will in no case enter the kingdom of heaven and so that would have been these statements of jesus would have started right out of the box to be 
counterintuitive, countercultural, in your face, shocking, perhaps um, beautifully spoken and winsomely spoken, but yet obviously different than what people expected. And that's a, it's obvious from the, the Beatitudes as, as you read them. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Would you expect that the poor in spirit would be blessed? No. Blessed are those who mourn. Would you expect people that are grieving to be blessed? No. It's counterintuitive. It's countercultural. Blessed are the meek because they're going to inherit the earth. How's that going to work? The guy's got his hand on his sword going, are you serious? How's that going to work? It doesn't make sense. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. They will be satisfied and be filled. Blessed are the merciful. They shall obtain mercy. Blessed are are the pure in heart. And they shall see God. And blessed are the peacemakers. They shall be called the sons of God. And and it gets interesting. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It couldn't possibly have been spoken. And people could have said, couldn't possibly have immediately gone, Oh, okay, I understand. I get that. That makes sense. Blessed are the persecuted. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And that's from verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Verse 10, blessed are the persecuted, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you, verse 11, when men revile you and, and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice, be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets which were before you. Did you ever notice how glibly we sing verse 3 of that knowing you song that we sang today? You ever think about that? We, we sing, um, oh, to know the power of it. We want uh, to, to know you in your suffering. Like, you might want to just think about that before you say it. You, some of you here today have been plunged into great suffering. And many of you have. And some just recently. And, and many of you long ago, you remember... I was speaking with one of our members here not too long ago who's been a widow for decades. Decades. Just made me think. I want you to notice something here. I want you to think of it like this. What do people normally think and what do people normally say? And let's look at what did Jesus say. Verse, verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. People, though, they say, Jesus said, if you are humble and broken, especially over, over sin, then th- those are the ones who enter the kingdom of heaven. That's what, what people think. People think you've got to be, be good or, or, or religious or, or maybe assertive or, or wealthy or, or proud or at least have a high self-esteem. Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit. We think we have to, if we want to really enjoy life or be blessed, then we have to be jovial, we have to be happy, we have to party. He said you mourn and grieve. It begins with mourning and grieving. It's like there's joy, but you grieve first, especially when, over sin. You grieve over your own sin, and you grieve over other people's sin. How do you get in the kingdom? poverty of spirit you recognize you have nothing to offer nothing to offer nothing you don't come to him presenting your works you don't come to him protesting your innocence you come to him confessing your absolute spiritual poverty that's how you get in the kingdom of heaven 
That's how you get saved, right? And then you're, you, have a, you have a grief or a mourning whenever you see the effects of sin. Like in your life or anybody else's life, there's grief there. The world says, be happy and be joyful and party and be jovial. The world says, be, a, be assured, self-assured and be confident. But what Jesus says in verse 5, blessed are the meek, they shall inherit the earth. The ones who come in and say, I don't have enough of my own personal power to do what needs to be done. I'm going to have to have help. That's meekness. They don't depend on their power. Verse 6, the world says, do what works. It, Jesus said, do what's right. Long for things to be right and long to be right yourself. You hunger and you thirst. Your desire is for right, for righteousness. But we think and people say, be ruthless and don't let people take advantage of you. Jesus specifically says, be merciful, be forgiving. Be conscious of your own forgiveness and the mercy that's the, the mercies that are, are new every morning for you and then never withhold mercy from another. Ephesians 4.32 be, be kind uh, to one another and tenderhearted and forgiving one another even as God for Christ's sake has forgiven you. If you're really a Christian and you really understand kingdom righteousness, you really can't be, you can't be unwilling to forgive other people because you live in a constant and continual awareness that you deserve to go to hell, but you were forgiven. And that you continue to sin, but God continues to forgive you. So you don't withhold forgiveness from, from others. Jesus uh, said, be pure in the deepest part of you, pure in heart, singular, if you will. You go after one thing, be pure. That's, that's a major way to find a blessed life. But the world says, um, be sensual. Go after every sensual pleasure there is, whether you're pure or not. Verse 8. Verse 9, the, we think, and the world teaches us to make waves and, and to be aggressive and to be assertive and to get things done, no matter who you are, or no matter who you have to walk on. Jesus said, be a peacemaker. Be a peacemaker. Someone bring me a tissue. Would you, sweetheart, if we have something down there, maybe somebody could dispatch one of the, one of the offspring to bring us tissue up here. This is what we do, and we're pastors. We talk in the third person. Thanks so much, Sandy. That's helpful. Excuse me. When I was in junior high school, I was skinny, oh, for the day. I was seriously skinny. I was as tall as I am now, lots less weight. Anyways, I got, I got picked on a lot. I don't know why, um, but I do remember I had a guy next to, next to my locker. The, the locker next to mine was occupied by a guy named Mike Nardini. Is that a cool name? Mike Nardini. Can you just envision this guy? He's a football player. His dad, Mike Nardini's dad, was the police chief. This could be fiction, but it, but it was true. And they, they picked on me a lot. They'd call me names and do things. And, and I remember one day Mike Nardini was standing. Mike Nardini and I weren't buddies. He was well-liked, and um, he was a football player, and, and he was socially in the in-group. And I was the independent Baptist fundamentalist, short-haired, pet irritating pastor's kid who people lettered in beating me up and you know that's the way it was so so he we weren't buddies but he wasn't among those who would pick on me ever 
he was just sort of bigger than that. You could just a bigger you could just see he was a bigger guy than that. But but one day some people were going through the hallway and they were doing some things that were just it kind of got out of order. And I never forget Mike just kind of stepping back. He took hold of his locker and he goes, Bam! He slammed his locker. He whirled around and looked at him and he goes, All right, that's enough. No more. Leave him alone. Do you hear me? Which I thought was pretty cool. And they all just kind of stepped back and I was like, And Mike looks at me kind of like he's disgusted with me too, like, Shh. and then he walks, <laughs> and then he walks away. And I remember his name. Can I can I give you a little secret confession? Every once in a while, I look up Mike Nardini on Facebook. <laughs> I would love to say to him, "You were the coolest thing going," because you took your big chest and your broad shoulders. And you were a peacemaker. Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers. That's godly. They'll be called the children of God. You'll recognize the distinctive qualities of the Father in a person who is a peacemaker. It's completely different, isn't it, than what we thought. And, and we think, and, and our culture teaches us to avoid pain and to avoid conflict and to avoid anything uncomfortable. And Jesus said, plan to suffer and rejoice and think about heaven when that happens. Well, i got a lot of stuff to say. And we'll just, I may have to have a very awkward ending today uh, because I can actually hear your stomach growling as I'm speaking. But happiness and holiness or righteousness cannot be separated. So we have Jesus here saying, I want to tell you what happiness is really about. And we have Jesus saying, I want to tell you what holiness is really about. That's what this message is about. And happiness and holiness cannot be separated. You cannot have real happiness without real holiness. That's what Jesus is saying here. He's, he's repeating, he's, he's, he's correcting the distortions of of the Old Testament law has just been kind of distorted uh, by other people. And he's saying, let me tell you what true righteousness is. Let me tell you what it really looks, what the kingdom really looks like. And let me tell you what real righteousness looks like and what real holiness looks like. And so he also is saying, let me tell you what real happiness, real joy, real blessedness looks like. Approved of God. Happiness that grows out of being approved by God. Let me show you what this looks like. That's what he's doing in this beautiful, beautiful sermon. Jesus' introduction must have left people feeling a little kicked in the, in the spiritual gut, a little bit uh, uh, wind knocked out. It, it's the way I feel every time I read it in, in its raw and honest terms. You, can you read this and go, yes, well, before I knew the Lord, you know, that wasn't true. But now all of that's true about me. You should love what the choir said. Let that be true of me. And my heart just sang with them. Let these things that are so beautiful about you, let them be true of me. And the, the Spirit, in a unique way, the other night I was reading my Bible and my electronic device in bed, and in a unique way the Lord said to me, as much Bible reading as you've done and as much study as you've done, you should be a better man than you are by now. And I couldn't argue with that thought. Just as a, just a brokenness there. Is anybody with me on this? Can you relate? Yeah. And I suppose that's what Jesus was primarily doing here. 
Don't come waltzing up to me and, 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 and presenting who you are like you're okay. You're not okay. And, and so, now notice this. Happiness and holiness and righteousness can't be separated. Let me kind of do a little review of what I said so far. Notice this. this we showed you the symmetry, the structure, kind of the poetic beauty of the message and, and the things that tie it together. We, we mentioned that God wants us to be happy or truly blessed, and, and, and he's giving us a way to be truly blessed. And we mentioned that it's not what we think. It's opposite of our natural inclinations. It's opposite of the culture that we live in. And we also said this, that, that happiness and holiness or righteousness cannot be separated. The standard of righteousness cannot be reduced in order to make you happy because then you wouldn't really have genuine blessedness. Jesus' introduction then would have left them with the wind knocked out. Each beatitude is an example of an aspect of righteousness without which people will not enter the kingdom. Verse 3, verse 10. It's when these things are true of us that there is a foreshadowing of the full and final kingdom. I, I don't have time to do it today, and that will frustrate some of you who love Bible study, but when we, use, when we use the term kingdom in the Bible, it is a really wonderfully loaded term in the Bible. It means it has aspects of meaning that are wonderful to study. But there will be a time when there is an actual and literal 1,000-year reign of Christ, often called the kingdom age. We point to in the future. There's even actually a time beyond that that we talk about in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. That's the ultimate eternal state beyond the kingdom age, the ultimate eternal state. And that's also sometimes referred to as the kingdom, the rule of Christ. But when Jesus came and he's preaching in these little villages, he's saying as if the kingdom is here right now, repent. The kingdom of heaven is, is here right now. It's at hand. The kingdom of heaven is here for you right now. What could that possibly have meant? Well, there's a lot of discussion. There's a lot of debate. There's a lot of, there's a lot of um, uh, rubbing of the temples on that one, isn't there? And, and it, it ought to be because the scriptures are full of this. But let me give you just some, just some bearing to think about this. The kingdom, what is the kingdom, and, uh, and, and how do I get into it, and what does it look like? This is, this is all things that Jesus gives us, he teaches here. And yet what happens is this, and, and, and perhaps I, what I've got to do is just awkwardly, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to find a spot to quit here, because I'm literally right in the very middle, maybe even earlier than the middle, of what I want to tell you here today, what I'd like to tell you here today. And, and I don't want to frustrate you. But let me just say it this way, and to get you to think about this, I think the way the Lord would have us think. As so Jesus was speaking these things, they're all kind of like different than we thought, right? You get that. So when Jesus was, was I believe, giving the Beatitudes, in a sense it introduces the whole rest of the message. It's the same material in a poetic form as the rest of the message is. And he's going to say, righteousness is different than you thought and he's going to say the kingdom is different than you thought and he's going to give us the the wherewithal to discover whether or not we really are on track there with that but there is going to be an ultimate we we just we we haven't really established but i certainly told you that the scriptures say there will be an ultimate eternal kingdom and you can read that in revelation 20 you can read that in first corinthians chapter 15 specific statements and lots of old testament references many matter of fact there's enormous number of references to the kingdom of God in the Bible. Many of them are pointed directly at that 1,000-year reign of Christ or, or the eternal state. But what is this? What is this kingdom that we have that we can get into right now? What is that? 
It is a spiritual matter. It's an inner matter. It's a matter of Christ rules over you. He rules over your passions and he, he rules over your desires and, and you obey him. It's the kingdom of, uh, used in a general sense, in his kingdom is the kingship, his kingship, his rule, his recognized sovereignty. You could say it like this. The kingdom is not him getting me what I want, but the kingdom is me doing what he wants. And that, on that hillside, in the Sermon on the Mount, there were people that were there that were thinking, ah, here's a wonderful person, or here's a powerful person, or here's a popular person. Perhaps now he will come and he will get me what I want. And Jesus is saying to them, you're not getting it. It isn't about what you want. It's what I want. It's what God wants. And that's what's best for you. And the kingdom, we need to understand, the kingdom is not me getting what I want. The kingdom is God empowering me to do what he wants, which will ultimately make me blessed like I've never been blessed before. Jesus is correcting a misunderstanding about the law and the kingdom. They were looking for, many of them were looking for an immediate military political deliverance and a deliverer. And he was correcting this. So he'd been going around saying, repent, the kingdom of heaven is hand. You repent into the kingdom of heaven. He was saying that there is now the possibility that a person can yield themselves to Jesus Christ, who's the king. Now, there is, this is beautiful and full and it is rich, but I want you just to, and I'll have much more to say about this. And, and what I'm going to do is I'm just going to hit the pause button right now. And, and I'm going to do something. I'm going to ask you to return this evening. I'm just going to pick up here this evening because it's just such uh, important truth. And I hope you'll be able to return. If you can't, maybe you can, we can pick it up as it's, uh, it's on the podcast. But I want you to just take your Bible and look at chapter 7. And I want you to look at how Jesus ended his sermon. In chapter 7, Matthew chapter 7, and you remember that we, we said there were the, the, the two gates and the two trees and, and there were the two foundations. Well, the two foundations is the final, is the final uh, story, if you will, that Jesus tells. He, and, and in this, it's very clear that he's saying you choose one of the two. You choose this broad way that leads to destruction or you choose this narrow way to life. This is true of the foundations. You build this kind of foundation or you build this kind of foundation. Wouldn't you really like to know what that is? To get to the heart of it, wouldn't you really like to know what that is? If you were sitting across the table with the Lord Jesus and you were to say to him, can you explain this to me? I'm not really that sharp. Explain this to me clearly. And then he were to say to you, here's what it looks like to really have righteousness and to really be in the kingdom. You would hold your breath while he answered that question or while he described that to you. Coming to the end then, he, he says, the people that are, have true righteousness and the people that are really in the kingdom, they're not the people who heard. Everybody heard. Let me just read it to you from verse 24. Whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain descended, the floods came, the winds blew and beat on that house, and it did not fall, for it was founded on the rock. What's that? It's a person who heard and who did, who obeyed, who practiced the things that Jesus said. That's the person who is truly blessed. That's the person who really is in the kingdom. That's the person who really has righteousness. It's that person who hears 
and practices what Jesus said. And then, verse 26, But everyone who hears these things of mine and does not do them, does not do them, He's a, like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain descended. The floods came. The winds blew, beat on that house. It fell, and great was its fall. How sad, how pathetic. When a person, if a person actually sat and heard the words that Jesus said, and they thought it was enough to memorize those words, and they thought it was enough to be familiar with those words. Millions of people today are familiar with Jesus. Millions of people today would have some kind of sense of loyalty to Jesus. Maybe they would even call themselves Christian or maybe even attend a, a church of some kind. But they do not do what Jesus said, not like this. Their life isn't characterized by these things. And Jesus said in another place, and, and perhaps in the same message in another place that's recorded in Luke, why do you call me Lord and you don't do the things that I say. It's not enough to be in church or hear good things. It's not enough to say that you're justified by faith. Say that you believed in Jesus unto salvation. Because genuine faith, being, really being in the kingdom, and true righteousness is not just hearing and making shallow promises to God. Because what happens is, if you truly believe, a miracle takes place within you, Holy Spirit indwells you, you're, you become a new person, and you have new appetites, and old appetites begin to wane, and these kinds of things begin to characterize your life, and so therefore, you are one who practices righteousness. If that's not true about you, then I would suggest one of the, the, reason, one of the good things about the Sermon on the Mount is it exposes us if we're not really saved. One of the good things about the Sermon on the Mount is it shows us real clearly what God expects of us. Those of that are saved, fill the Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit working in us, we have before us what pleases the Lord, what the kind of behavior and the kind of inner attitudes that God really blesses. There's more uh, to be said, and we will say more. But is this enough? For you, I heard, I heard once a simple preacher who said, uh, somebody told me, he said, somebody told me I was being shallow and that my preaching wasn't deep enough. I'll never forget him saying that, just a young guy. Somebody told me I was being shallow and my preaching wasn't deep enough last week, he said. He said, last week I told you to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Did you do that this week? Well, then that's what we need to talk about again. <laughs> it's like, it, it's really the issue is, is your life deep enough? Is your righteousness true? Are you genuinely in the kingdom? Do you, do you long for these things to be true about you, Pastor Ricky?